0: We'll finish in a moment, I promise you. Good evening, everyone. Isn't that nice? Welcome to Brooklands. I'm Steve Clark, as if you didn't know that. Thank you very much indeed. No heckling, please. I'll start again. Thank you for being here, and once again, thank you for supporting the Trust. A very warm welcome to our worldwide YouTube viewers whether it be good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or wherever you are. But a special welcome to Amanda McLaren and Steve Donald down there in New Zealand. I hope you're able to join in and uh, listen to this evening. So our guest this evening needs no introduction, but I will, Neil Trundle. I understand. You're over there. Welcome, Neil. Oh, God, don't start. You only had one drink as well, so you're doing well. Um, Before I um, start the formal proceedings, um, just a few parish notices. Um, Now, Neil and I are loosely termed gentlemen of a certain age. Whilst we perfected the art of drinking, we're not very good at hanging on to it. (laughs) Um, So we are going to have a comfort break in about 45 minutes. Uh, which will give you time to go to the bar. If Colin Mullen is here, that will please him because he's been bending my ear for the last seven years to get a bar uh, extension in during the talk. So um, we're going to break for that and then we'll have uh, some Q&A with Neil because I know that there's a lot of you that have got questions you'd love to ask him. Some will be embarrassing um, and others will be just uh, factual. But... Uh, by all means, ask those questions. Um, there are a number of Neil's former colleagues here tonight, oh more than I tend to want to mention, uh, from his days at Brabham, Terrell, Rondell, Project 2 and McLaren, and I'm sure we will hear from them later. <laughs> um, but I have one sad announcement to, to make. I'm sure many of you will know that uh, our good friend, Jeff Dovey, who looked after the Napier route for many years, drove it spiritedly... At various events and Chris Moore said to me his name will be ever more linked with that car um, he died at the weekend um, a great loss to everyone but a lovely man um, our sympathies go to his son uh, Andrew and to the entire family thank you now throughout my seven years of running the talks program you'll have to indulge me for just a moment and you'll have to wait yeah. Um, which is unusual for Neil to you wait but, um, I've always enough. maintained that I've stood on the shoulders of giants when we've delivered these series of talks. And those four giants, Steve Parrish, Simon Taylor, Richard Williams and Steve Cropley. Unfortunately, Steve Parrish is off earning money somewhere else tonight. Um, love to be with us, but he will be watching. Um, he was the first guest that I booked, and it was a sell-out from day one. Um, he's been a great entertainer. He's brought some of the very best motorcycle riders worldwide to us. It's been a bit edgy at times, um, <laughs> and, and I'm sure that uh, many of you remember certain individuals have, have been here, Carl Fogarty being one. But we'll move on from there. Um, likewise, Simon Taylor, uh, in my mind, a legend. Um, I remember listening to him doing Grand Prix commentary years ago and who would have believed that he could be here with us he's brought us some absolutely superb motorsport religions over the years Um, and a personal thanks to him for the Sterling Moss event he commented on so well Um, and the final couple of people Richard Williams, motorsport music and sports journalist books include Death of Senna and the Richard Seymour book Race Life and Death Richard thank you It's been a pleasure knowing you. Uh, This is going to sound morbid, but Richard writes the most wonderful (laughs) (laughs) pictures. I remember that.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: You learn more about certain... We have a common taste in music, and um, some of the stuff that he writes actually brings these people back to life again. So thank you, Richard. And finally, Steve Cropley. Welcome, mate. Good to see you. Steve has more knowledge and contacts in the motor industry than anyone else I know. (coughs) If he's offered me buckets full of advice, and thank you. My only regret is that you're not on the trustee board here, (coughs) Steve. (laughs) But we won't go there. But gentlemen, thank you. So, So. here we are again, another instalment of the Ramblings of a Racing Man. And we must be careful
1: that we don't ramble too much tonight. Okay, we have a certain amount of time. We will. And we've got to pack a bit in. But here to talk
0: about you tonight, not McLaren, not the design, not the gearboxes, but your
1: history of how you got
0: to be where you were and where you are today. Okay.
1: Can I first say, great to be here. And we cancelled this last year. Yeah, we did. And here we are, hopefully coming out of... Covid and Omicron, and um, it, it's wonderful Absolutely. to support Brooktons.
0: 100%. <laughs> now, you're a self-confessed Essex boy, aren't you? Oh, I certainly sure am. <laughs> I, I used to talk like that. But you could do it with a bit of persuasion, couldn't you? <laughs> um, but you started an apprenticeship
1: with Fords. Yep.
0: Which you got your first taste of motorsport. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, so uh, I did a five-year apprenticeship in the trade school, which, uh, like Rolls-Royce apprenticeship, was one of the best in England. And uh, I did okay. I, um, I did three years at the trade school, and um, it was all male, unfortunately. <laughs> we didn't have girls coming in then. Um, and then I moved out into the foundry and the forge plant, um, but I started to, I, my interest in racing started on mo, two wheels and motorbikes. And my wife and I, who's here tonight, supporting me. Um, we used to go to Brands Hatch, and I remember seeing Mike Haywood. and bikes were my love. But then I started follow, following cars, and whilst I was at Ford's, East Anglia and Racing were operating a semi-works anglia team, Ford Anglia team, club racing. And Roger Taylor was the son of one of the directors, and so lots of um, parts came through the prototype tool room that I was working in. I was in Dunton Research from day one, first in the door we were, and I was a Turner toolmaker fitter, and lots of bits used to come through for those race cars. (laughs) So I followed the racing, and I thought... This is your future. Yep, and I wanted to be a race driver. That was. In fact, most of the, lots of the mechanics that I've known over the years have always fancied themselves as race drivers. In fact, some of them made it as race drivers. Sure.
0: So your next move, and I'm fascinated to how you finished up in the leafy lanes of Surrey uh, hey. with the Allen Man Racing Organisation. Yeah, so
1: um, I, I was building... Um, I built a monoposto car, um, single seater, to go racing with. And um, in fact, I had a Lotus 11 on the road before that, and I swapped it with a guy named Reg Gubbins, It's a nice name. name. Reg Gubbins, Essex boy in Raynham. I swapped it for this Lotus 18 Formula Junior, and I I raced it a couple of times. But uh, during that time, a a friend of mine, Ray Tunney, who's listening in tonight, um, Ray Tunney, who was uh, also an apprentice, and he went into the drawing office side, His passion was racing as well. We would go rallying and do all-night rallies. We'd we'd work all day, rally all night, and and work all the next day, no sleep. He left Fords and got a job at um, Cooper Cars. Of course. And uh, with John Rhodes on the minis. And um, a few months after that, he rang me up and he said, Alan Mann are recruiting. Um, Why don't you come for an interview? Mm. So I came down to Surrey and I got the job straight away. And I told Dad I'm leaving home. I was 23, so I wasn't young, but um, so I didn't have anywhere to live. Uh, I arrived at Alencon, and they were building the beautiful F3L, which was a fantastic, beautiful car, sports car. Mm-hmm. Um, I came in with my little um, uh, small toolboxes, and these guys had great big Listers, you know, or, or with size nap-on. matters. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I worked all day and we did an all-nighter. My first day there. Remind everyone, or some
0: that don't know, just a very quick snapshot of Alan Mann Racing organisation and who was
1: driving at the time. So, they were in uh, Oyster Lane. um, Clive Wharton who was here tonight, he was working there. Um, Frank Gardner was the driver. Big Frank Gardner. Yeah, who used to walk tippy-toe and was a great character. He drove the Escorts, he drove the F3L, they built the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang there. They built yeah. the doppelganger. So I went to the door as a fitter mechanic.
0: They were always such well-turned-out cars Beautiful. As
1: well, yeah, lovely colour scheme. Yeah. Head of its time, supported. really. Yeah, and um, supported by Fords. Hmm.
0: So the next port of call was a um, cold call
1: to Brabham's. Right. So Waylock Works. Yeah. And you encountered one Rontoranac. <laughs> yes. I'd only been at Alan Man six months and they started to lay people off. Uh, as it turned out, Alan was winding it down, and he took Ford's money and started Alan Mann Helicopters. So yeah. he folded the company. Um, so I walked down the road, walked into Ron Toronac's office. What? Asked the secretary, walked in and met Ron, sit down, you know, what can I do for you? I'd like a job. Do you want to do a Ron Toronac accent? Yep. And I said, I'd like to be a race mechanic, and he said, only good race mechanics or Australians and New Zealanders. (laughs) He said, but you can go in the production shop. So I started building production race cars. But every night I would slip into the F1 shop where Ron Dennis was a mechanic and I would work till midnight on the cars for no extra money. That was our passion.
0: And that was your first encounter with
1: Ron? Uh, that was my first encounter. We didn't hit it off straight away. I'd... <laughs> Why doesn't that surprise me? <laughs> okay. So I'd only been there a few months doing um, building production cars and um, Jerry Hones, God rest him, lovely foreman, he said, have you got your passport with you? He said, you're off to Zanvoort with Jack. They've got a problem with the wreck coming.
0: Perfect um, example of... One of the shops down there. Yeah, look at that. That was, that, yeah. that was our,
1: our production Amazing flight. place. Yeah, we built beautiful race cars, mm-hmm. and they would make you know, 60 cars in a year.
0: And who were the predominant F1 drivers at the time?
1: Well, uh, 1968, I mean, Jackie X, Rint was coming up. In fact, Rint was on board then. He came from Coopers with Ron. Ron started at Coopers, and when Rint came to Brabham's, Ron, came, Ron Dennis came with him. Um, Stewart, X yeah, all those guys, yeah. heroes.
0: We've often talked about uh, campaigning to get a blue pluck put down, didn't we? Yeah, when yeah. you think about what was generated from that
1: Waylon tiny works. factory, yep,
0: and the designers that have come through that place is just yeah. absolutely. Gordon
1: awesome. Murray was there from yep. South Africa in 1970. So, yeah, yeah. Ralph Bellamy, yeah, and. And Toranet was a, a tough cookie and, and generally had to make something before he could uh, draw it because he couldn't envisage it quite, so you'd make about three prototypes and then he'd draw it. Tony Whitman's here tonight, he was yeah. on the team. Yeah. In fact, there's so many people, mechanics that I work with here, that um, they should be up here talking about their careers. Well, they may want to take to the floor later, we shall wait. <laughs> um, but
0: yeah, the, um, obviously... The first meeting and the, with uh, Ron Dennis really mapped things for the future. Which, uh, well, it did. We
1: went to Zandvoort um, because there was a problem with the engine. I flew out on Jack's plane. I'd never flown before. I was feeling pretty ill for the first hour of the flight. Uh, but I fell asleep and woke up in Zandvoort. And, uh, interestingly, we used to drive the cars from the garage in the town out to the circuit. But my first real encounter with, with Ron was that um, we'd worked all night and um, I was asked to put the clutch back on. I never worked on these race cars, but, you know, a clutch is a clutch. And I put the clutch align it all in. And I had cleaned it all out like Ron is used to. And he said, we don't do things like that at Brabham's. And I said, how would you like a smack on the nose? (laughs) (laughs) And And you've
0: never looked back since, have you?
1: (laughs) From then on, we're best mates. We'd, we'd socialise and uh, yeah, great story. times at great story. Yeah,
0: so let's move to 1971 yeah. and the birth of Rondell Racing.
1: Okay, so um, Ron and I were um, on the F1 team, and um, I also did uh, Indianapolis uh, '69 and uh, '70. And um, so, end of 1970, Jack decided to retire. In fact. Arguably, he should have won the championship, but Mm. for two failures. One was Monaco, where on the last corner he ran in the barriers with rent hard on his tail, and brands when he ran out of fuel, which Ron got the blame for, but it turns out it wasn't Ron. I went to Jack's uh, 80th birthday party in Australia, Pam and I went, and um, Nick Guzé sent a letter, and he said, by the way, Jack, it wasn't Ron. He said, I set the metering unit in the wrong position, it used too much fuel. All those years and Ron took the, the brunt of that.
0: <laughs> but at least he accepted it, so that was probably good. He did accept
1: exam- it, yeah. Perfect. So at the end of 70, um, Jack retired and I went back to Essex to finish my Formula Ford that myself and a colleague, John Field, were building. And uh, Ron had thought, I can do this as well as Brabham's. So he rang me up, came to see me and he said, I think we can start a race team together.
0: But Ron was all about image then, wasn't he?
1: He was, but he was, he was very... He could see in the future, you know, he was very ambitious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything had to be right, yes. So we set up Ron Down. We had no money at all. We lived with um, Ron's parents, rent-free, no food, didn't pay them a penny for a year. Um, we did have a sponsor, Tony Vlasopoulos, who sadly passed away last year, um, a Greek shipping guy. He didn't put a fortune in, but he backed us. Um, we got engines from Bernie Ecclestone. Um, in fact, we picked up the engines, um, two engines, uh, because Graham Hill also said, uh uh-uh, Schenken and I, let's do two-car team. And, um, but we didn't pay Bernie for them, and we got a phone call a bit of a threatening phone call, so we quickly paid Bernie.
0: (laughs) Surprise, surprise.
1: So we set up Rondell, and it was immaculate.
0: But Brabham's were very helpful, and Ron Tornat was very helpful, too,
1: wasn't he? Yeah. Tornat was the fairest man you'd ever meet in business, and so we didn't have to pay for the cars till the end of the year. In fact, later, when we talk about my F3 team, he also gave me fantastic credit. Mm. And so... He supported all the teams. I mean, we talk about Dick and I in F3. He was very supportive. Yeah,
0: probably not a well-understood man, then, in that case. No,
1: dead straight. And the best payer to all his um, traders as well, Mm. apparently. Yeah, good guy. So,
0: in 73, um, you started to look at the prospect of a Rondell F1 car.
1: Yep, which is that car there. Perfect timing. Yes. (laughs) So, um, Ron was ambitious, -ambitious, over-ambitious, I mean, he was a shaker and mover, but he was a bit over ambitious. We, we uh, kind of overstepped ourselves in 73. We, we went from two cars to three cars to eventually five cars. And we were running a sports car. We were building our own chassis and we started to build what was going to be the Rondell F1 car. Yeah. But that was the fuel crisis then, three day week, and we lost our sponsors. We lost Motul. Uh, we Domet Sherry were going to come on board, and uh, Tony Vasopoulos said, "I can't float the the business any longer." Um, at our workshop—we had a new workshop in Feltham, which was spotless. It had a tile floor, partitioning. It was—it was F1 standard, all beyond. All beyond, yeah. And so we folded, and Graham Hill took it over for his F1 team.
0: So did it not morph into the um, token F1 design?
1: so yeah, when we folded Ron went down the road somewhere which I didn't know initially where I was trying to salvage the creditors, I have to say we owed people money but they got paid back when Ron set up his own team and McLaren all those people got got, paid. got the money back ten times over so um, Tony Vosopoulos took the F1 car, the uh, what became the token, so the token was Tony Vassopoulos and Ken Grob, became the token. We went into a little workshop in Hersham. Halfway. Yep. Uh, two of us, Chris Lewis and myself and Ray Jessup, the designer, we had lots of helpers, including my father now and again. Pam came down and fed us night and day. We didn't leave the workshop for th- Three weeks, and we entered the Silverstone Daily Express Trophy with the car with Tom Price. Chris Meek sponsored Tom. He bought the engine. That was our F1 car, the token. It's a lovely little car. still running now in well, its Wonderful.
0: At some point, you realised you wanted to move on to development, yep.
1: um, and you went to Tyrrell. Yep. So I was worn out. I was absolutely... I think you'd on gone
0: call. on record and saying. You've just about burnt out.
1: I was. So uh, I ran Ken and I went down there and I said I'd like to do prototype work and started at Tyrrell. Fantastic team. Happy year. So I went there in um, uh, 74 and I did 74, 75 and 76. And they were great, great days. Um, I was involved in building the six wheel Tyrrell. In fact, I was the sort of project manager. We took a 007 and we cut the front off. And Derek had designed all the steering. And it, was, it wasn't it was any quicker than the 007, but it certainly made the press.
0: It certainly did. And we
1: it? did the launch at London and covered yeah. the front wheels, and when we pulled the cover off. Best kept secret in motor racing.
0: But the rumour is true. You were the first person to drive it.
1: I was, yep. Yeah. So uh, once we launched it, um, we needed to do all the brake balancing and uh, check the brakes out. And our drivers were elsewhere, racing. So um, Ken said, you've got a racing licence. He said, you can test it. So my mechanics that I worked with had to be my race mechanics on the day.
0: I bet they love that. Right.
1: (laughs) And I was determined not to spin it, but I came down on about the 10th time and did a spin turn, and I I lost it. And they all cheered.
0: Was it... (laughs) Was it completely different to drive?
1: No. Well, I mean, I'd driven Formula 4. It was... It was. No, you, you wouldn't have known. I mean, you could see the wheels, but and we had little windows in the side.
0: So you could see. Yeah,
1: but the, Jody hated that car, but, and it was actually very unsafe, but it was quick, and he had a couple of wins. Oh, no, he had one win <laughs> with it, and loads of second places. And that was, for me, magic, magic time. Mm-hmm. I went... I, Pam and I were together then, and I used to say, I'm doing this secret car, and what's different about it? I said, it's got four wheels at the front. And she used to forget, and I was afraid she'd tell someone. It was the best-kept secret in motor racing. Yeah, yeah,
0: marvellous times. So, back to Ron Dennis.
1: Yep.
0: Project one, project two, the BMW era.
1: So, I went back with um, Ron at end of 76. Um, why did I leave Tyrrell? I, I loved Formula 2. And Ron encouraged me to come back. He could be very persuasive, you know. I'm sure. <laughs> so he said, and I was moonlighting for him anyway, doing stuff, welding and stuff in the evenings. So he said, come back and join me. We're moving places, you know. So I went uh, end of 76. And we went right through to um, the amalgamation with McLaren. So, and we did so much, we we won the championship. Dick was running the car for Stefan uh, with Marlborough money. And this was the big Marlborough involvement starting to come in with Ron. I should just go back because when we had Rondell, John Hogan, God bless him, Mr. Marlborough, he was working for us at um, Rondell, 1973, on 10% of any money you could find. And he didn't find us much but he found himself a damn good job in Marlborough. <laughs> um, so Ron called, I think, called on the favour, and Ron started to get Marlborough money. Mm. So we ran Nicky Lauder in the pro cars. Peter Hennessy is here. We built 36 of those things. And
0: where did you build those?
1: We built them in Pool Road, in what was the old furniture warehouse. Yeah. And we built them in the upper floor, and Peter and I put in uh, what was a, a truck lift of, a four car, a four screw lift to bring them up to the second floor. And uh, we built 36 of those, and there was the Pro Car Championship. Championship
0: yeah.
1: We ran Formula 2 for Chico Serra with Marlborough um you No, know, he had Brazil money for Andrea de Cesaris with Marlborough money. So we were getting well in with Marlborough. And then we started to build what was going to be the project for Formula 1, One car. car. Mm.
0: You talked about the amalgamation with. Uh Project 4 McLaren, how did that go, and what was your involvement? Uh,
1: okay, so my involvement was in the carbon chassis. So I'd like to put it on record that I was the person that introduced John Barnard to British Aerospace uh, when we sat around the table, and British Aerospace said, you, you're not looking at honeycomb, you should be looking at carbon. composite Carbon. Uh, I met this guy in hospital when I was having my tonsils out and I said to him, we need some advice on doing honeycomb chassis. So we, um, we went down to B.A. British Aerospace and they were the ones that put us on the carbon chassis. So we'd started to build the carbon chassis mm. and the assistant on that project to John Barnard was Arthur Webb. Yeah. And Arthur was here at the John Watson. John Watson the evening. Yeah and at the end of John's talk we had questions and I mentioned Arthur and I said, Arthur are you here tonight, there's a rumour you're here and he never stood up and afterwards he came up to me and he said what was your involvement in the carbon chassis (laughs) and I said, I made the mold." I said you're Arthur Webb and he said yep and he didn't earn a penny for that, he did it voluntarily so he helped John to design that car. brokered the amalgamation. Um, McLarens were on the slippery slope. They couldn't design a stiff enough chassis for ground effect. So the uh, M28, M29, M30, which H was probably working on, they weren't stiff enough. They were ground effect, but you needed a good stiff chassis. And uh, so um, John Hogan and Marlborough said, you either amalgamate with Ron or we pull the plug." plug. That was it. We amalgamated October 1980. That was my involvement.
0: And you were still based in Colnebrook at the time?
1: So w- you- we were in Pool Road, yeah. building the F1, what was going to be the um, MP4, F1 car, which later became MP4. 1. We were in Pool Road, they were in Colnebrook. So we were backwards and forwards. And eventually Ron gave up the Pool Road and, and went to Colnebrook. But the true gelling of the team was when Ron forced them to move to Woking to Boundary Road and that really brought the whole thing together, together. yeah interesting times I can imagine was just fantastic yeah you know so in 81 um, I when I was involved first off with McLarens I was involved in doing the new wind tunnel at um, Teddington there was a spare wind tunnel, and we needed our own wind tunnel. I was involved in that, but there was a lot of backstabbing. The, the gel wasn't, you know, we weren't working together. Uh, there was them and us, Project 4 and McLaren guys. And I had the chance to set up my own F3 team. So I missed those magic times of that car, uh, with the DFE engine, and then, of course, with the um, turbo, tag turbo engine. I really missed those times. But I had my own little F3 team.
0: So it was a big move for you, really, when you started your own F3 team.
1: I can't believe the risk I took. And Pam never picked me up on it. Never said, are you sure you should be doing this? We had good money. We had uh, Klaus Schinkel, a Mexican. And we had the going rate, which at the time was 4500 per race, which included two tests. We had the contract for the year. Ron helped me. I bought lots of kit off Ron from the old Project Four Days. He helped me, he didn't want me to leave, but he helped me. And so we were off and running with our own team. Mm-hmm. We had a little caravan, and Pam was making meat pies okay. for the races.
0: Based in Woking again. Yeah.
1: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, not Ron's old workshop, not the big workshop, he had a little one around yeah, the corner.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: Heady days. Heady days. You want to talk about F3, we've got time?
0: Yeah, go for it, yeah.
1: Well, Dick and I ran neck and neck for the F3 season in 81. He had four races start on me. He was running Parma and he had four races on me and I was trying to catch him up all year. I had Tassen, Tassin came to me after a few races. My Mexican driver wasn't very good. And Tassin was in the Argo and that was rubbish. And he, um, uh, Nick Jordan, allowed him to leave and come with me. So I built the second car. I built that in a rush. With Rolts you had to go and build your own car if you weren't in a hurry. I ground my finger off trying to get it on a quick uh, a ziz on the on the grinder before a test of good one. I lost my whole thumbnail, but we still made Goodwood tests. And I chased him all year. We had five wins, and uh, he had seven, I think. And uh, we never called him up, so we were neck and neck. It was good, though.
0: And you're still talking to him.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. He's Mr F3, isn't it? Well, he was Mr yeah. F3. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So magic time, my F3 yeah. team. So... Um
0: 1988, you're enticed back to McLaren? Before that, 85. 85.
1: So I ran my little F3 team, but we were struggling to get money. I was let down by um, a Brazilian driver, Louis Schaffer. He said he did four races, and I came for the next payment, and he said, I don't need more money. I never had it in the first place. Just so I didn't zap him one, but I... So I found other drivers, but that, and so I folded the F3 team... I bought a little garage in Woking, Fuller's Garage, and uh, I was doing a bit of moonlighting for Ron at McLaren, and he said, what the hell are you doing? So I was clerk of the work for the um, Shearwater factory, called the Orange Bowl, with Alan Fenn, great guy. Alan was the sales guy back in the Brabham and Rolt days. We fitted the whole place out, the new workshop. And uh, I went back on the team in 87. I was travelling fabricator, and then the end of 87, um, Ron decided I should be team manager. Oh, sorry, yeah, team manager. Yeah. And so we negotiated our money. Um, unfortunately, my poor old mate Barry Alterhan, he had to stand down. But we went down the pub and sorted it out, and he didn't bear me any grudge. So I was, um, sorry, not team manager, chief mechanic. Uh, so that was it, 88 season. So you were there at the birth of the Golden Child,
0: the MP4 yep. one. Yeah. Tell us about that era.
1: Okay, so Ron said we got Senna coming on board, and I said, um, so I want that money plus prize money, and he said, well, we might have a bad year, and I said, we might have a good year. <laughs> but was, so Senna brought the Honda engine, yeah. that was the thing, and sadly we stole the engine from Williams.
0: And he'd come from Lotus, and not he, to you?
1: He'd come from Lotus. They had um, Honda with PK and a Japanese driver. And we had um, Senna with the Williams engine. Mm. So we took it straight off Williams, which that happens in racing. Dog eat dog. Mm. <laughs> the Piranha Club.
0: So that was a crazy season, wasn't
1: it? Fantastic season. Tell
0: us, talk us through the season. that uh, It kind of ended up with Senna winning the championship. At, uh, right. But, well...
1: Yeah, so, um, I mean, the car was quick, straight out the box. Um, The engine, obviously, was so well sorted. The chassis was good. Uh, The drivers were the best. You know, to win a championship, it's quite easy. You've got to get the best engine, best drivers, best tyres, best chassis, and reliability. And if you've got all those... Can't go wrong. You can't go wrong, and we didn't go wrong. We won 15 out of 16 races... And um, it was, you know, we didn't have to alter the car drastically. You know, we didn't do massive development like they do now. It was quick out the box and we kept that advantage all year. And ironically, the Lotus with the same engine, and they had active ride, I think, at the time, it wasn't on the pace. Um, It was just a magic time. And uh, it goes down in history, you know.
0: For lots of different reasons.
1: Yeah, and there's some of the designers here tonight yeah. and the team of that car. So how did you
0: find working with Senna? What was the relationship like?
1: Well, he was tough, but he was very quick. But You know, they were both very clever. They used to use things to their advantage. and um, So when we went to Imola, the very first test and Elaine was due to run around in the car, and all the other teams had set the pace. We were the, on the last two days of testing. Ferrari had been there, and everyone set the pace. Elaine went out and did a few laps, came in, and he said, we can win the championship in this car. And then he went out and put a lap time in, and it was about second half quicker than anyone had run, and they all thought we had the turbo boost up. And, and Senna wasn't due to drive, and he persuaded Ron, he said, I want to drive it now, you know, he, he insisted that he had a go oh, and he went out and obviously went yes, quicker than, yeah. yeah, so um, he was very pushy, but they were both, they used, you know, they used the team to the best advantage.
0: And what was the atmosphere like in the team?
1: It was good in 88, in 89 it all went wrong. wrong, yeah, at Imola, it all went wrong, you know, um, Alain said, Ayrton reneged on the on the deal as to who should get, you know, who should get to the first corner first. The other one wouldn't attempt to pass, and the race was stopped and restarted. And uh, Alain jumped him on the start and down the first corner. and Ayrton promptly went down the inside, and that was it. Yeah. That was I can still end. hear Murray Walker commenting now. End of the honeymoon. Yeah, yeah. I mean." So we weren't that involved. We, we were aware of it, but we weren't in the debriefs. Um, I'm sure Steve Nichols was involved a lot, and Joe Ramirez and Neil, they were involved in the, the bad taste. But it, in the garages, we weren't. You know, They came, they got in their cars, they weren't at each other's throats across the garage. You know? But yeah, it was there. And of course, culminating in Japan, when they had each other off, yeah. that was bad for us mechanics, you know. We could see it.
0: last thing you wanted to see. Yeah,
1: and um, that was not like the Senate, um, like the um, Lewis Championship this year. It wasn't the right way to finish the championship. No. That's not what you want. And we could see it building up to it on the big screen. We said, this is going to end in...
0: But it was like last year, you could almost feel something was going to happen.
1: Yeah, whoever writes those scripts has yeah, <laughs> got, right. got imagination.
0: Absolutely. So we'll probably talk more about the centre era when we get some questions later, but following the 89 series, you hang up your tool bag and leave the
1: travelling circus behind. Well, yeah, i travelled um, for quite a few years yeah. and, uh, you know, the family were, gro- were growing and I thought if I don't find myself a slot back at the factory, um, you know, when I, if I leave it much longer, there won't be any jobs Permanent jobs, you know, um, factory-based jobs. So I said, I think I'd like to finish. And Ron said, well, maybe stay on. But a job became available running the gearbox shop. And I had 16 years of challenging times with my dear colleague, Dave North, who's here tonight. Genius of gearbox design. Such a nice guy. I don't think we ever had a bad word between us. Um, so I did 16 years in the gearbox. That's a long time, isn't it? Yep, and we did some all-nighters.
0: But probably when you arrived, a gearbox looked nothing like the ones you would see today.
1: Well, when I, uh, when I first took over, we more or less had Hewland derivative gearboxes um, for quite a few years. In fact, you know, race cars still have dog boxes. They're seamless shift and computer control.
0: There's still the cogs in yeah. the
1: back. they're not the CVT, that never came about. So they're still dogs and cogs. But uh, certainly we had magnesium casings, then we had aluminium casings, then we had fabricated titanium casings, and then carbon casings. And
0: progress was stunning. Yes, yeah. So finally, you find your way into the Heritage Centre so to look after the fleet that were growing fleet of vehicles yeah
1: so my staff was getting bigger and bigger as the technology moved on the gear side and in the end I think I had about nine or ten people and the paperwork and the lifing systems were getting a bit too much for me I'd, that's not my scene no and I still love the heritage cars so the opportunity came up to take over heritage which had existed from when Ron first took over and then he'd folded it and then it revived and this was another revival of heritage. They realised these precious cars were becoming dead and they needed livening up. And I just enjoyed that so much. I can imagine.
0: The um, bit of footage with you at Goodwood um, was fairly typical, I guess. You told me a story just now about uh, someone sitting in one of the cars when they started it up
1: We had, um, I did, um, I was um, a guest at Monaco to entertain some of the customers of our road car. And there were a couple there, a very pretty lady and her husband, and they'd bought two McLaren road cars. And they turned up at Goodwood. So I thought it would be good PR to sit her in that uh, M23, which was actually Emerson's championship car. So I sat her in and she was, Oh, she, would, she was over the moon. And uh, she was playing around. There's the gear lever, and I was doing all that. And then I thought, well, it needs warming up. So I thought, well, this will be a bit of a thrill for her. So uh, I said, don't touch anything.
0: <laughs> Famous last word. So I
1: flicked the ignition switch on, pressed the of it. I didn't realise she had her foot flat on the accelerator. <laughs> and, I was, ah! and I just about grabbed the steering wheel. Uh, switch and uh, yeah sh- that that thrilled her
0: I bet it did probably not in your case though <laughs> which brings me on we'll come back to um, some of you will have attended the sterling moss event here back in the summer and uh, Neil was here um, and was helping uh, one that the Rick Hall, Hall, Hall.' to start Hall. the Maserati 250f which was about to become the star of the show. But the bugger wouldn't start, would it? It
1: wouldn't start. So he dragged it out of the workshop and it hadn't been run for six months. And um, and Rick I know very well from Historic Racing, it was a lovely two fifty F Maserati. And Pam and I were there dressed up and it was it was a lovely day. Uh, you know But
0: you couldn't help yourself, could you? And there and and,
1: and, 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 and and I said, What's up, Rick? It won't start. I can't understand it. I flooded it. So we took all the plugs out and cleaned them. And it's two plugs per cylinder. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we cleaned all the plugs and put it back in. And he said, it doesn't seem to have any fuel, I don't think. Well, he'd forgotten to turn the fuel tap on. (laughs) So my trick to start these cars, we used to use petrol squirters, but now we use brake clean can. So I got to the front of the inlet for the carbs.
0: Given the... Inlet is the whole length of the bonnet. And
1: we couldn't take that off over the carbs, only the for the plugs. So I sprayed it up the inlet. Righto, ah, Rick. And, he... and it fired up. Vroom, yeah. vroom, and cut again. So I give it another go. And my hair, I had my hair cut this morning. My hair was down to here the last, but it was long then. So I sprayed again. Ah, vroom,
0: you wouldn't stop spraying, though, would you?
1: <laughs> and I, I, I just uh, stood back. It was very hot. And I sprayed again, and away she went, and it, it primed the fuel pump. I've never seen anyone move so quick. No. <laughs> and I had uh, no eyebrows, and my scalp was ginger, burnt, <laughs> and I had no hair there. No. I said, "That's the last time I ever help you again, Rick.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but at least the car ran, and it was the star of the show. So yeah, it was. Thanks yeah. to you. Just going back to the Heritage Collection, do you have a favourite in there?
1: Um, well, the 4.4, of course, uh, the Turbo 4.4 and uh, MP4.1. Right. Chassis number one, the very first carbon chassis. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it still looks nice and it's, the chassis still sound, you know. this years ago they said how long is this composite resin chassis going to survive are they going to start to fall apart in 10 years but we tap them and they're solid and we we don't twist them and check them for stiffness but um, looks as good as when we put it together yeah, a yeah. bit of fading in the sunlight in a few places yeah, but yeah. amazing material
0: but do you have problems maintaining their ability to run is that becoming a problem or-
1: well the old DFE cars mp 41 that's easy But when we come to the TAG turbo engine ones, which had the Motronic uh, uh, control system, electronic control, computer control, then you've got problems. Uh, And yeah, they do die. And and in fact, the later cars, 10 years' time, I don't know if they're going to be able to. And TAG um, Electronics, which was founded with Ron Dennis, TAG Electronics, and um, Dr. Udo Zucker from Bosch. So when the turbo um, Porsche engine finished, Ron took Udo Zucker from Bosch into McLarens and formed Tag Electronics. Oh,
0: really, right.
1: And um, so Tag didn't keep all that software. It's all lost, you know? I mean, there's a guy that's bought up uh, some of the old boxes, and he's starting to uh, refurb them. But um, in fact, Uber um, Eberhardt, Airbart. Galba, the Bosch uh, engine electronics man, he started working on his own in retirement and he made us a new box a couple of years ago and it was better than the original. Original. All new systems, you know. Yeah,
0: more reliable. It is
1: a problem with all these cars though, Mm.
0: And it'll only get worse.
1: Yeah, it will, yeah.
0: There's a very young Lewis Hamilton just flashed up on the uh, screen, do you remember that, uh that I think you look very younger as well. <laughs>
1: you sound like I look so old where, now? So what year was that? Um, Roughly. Oh, well, it, 2007, yeah, probably. So we knew him from when he was nine years old, when he wow. first came onto the scene with Ron, and we used to, he used to come to our kart races, and, and we followed his karting and, and supported him all the way through. And then he came on board. And what a talent. And just for the... Just for the sake of saying to Ron, I'd like to drive for you in the future.
0: But Ron was good to his word.
1: Sure he was, yeah. And he always is actually. He's a tough cookie, but um, you know, he's actually supported a lot of people. And in COVID, he, he hasn't been recognized for lots of charity work he did in COVID. He set up with Absolute Taste, his catering company, he set up and did thousands of meals for the nurses. Cost him, you know, millions. And, um, Never get recognition. He wasn't recognised for that, no. But did
0: he want to be, though?
1: No, he's, he's strange. You know, I said to him, Ron, we've got to get that knighthood for you soon. He said, I'm not really bothered, but... I bet he is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we, um, well, it's nearly two years ago now that we did a kind of spoof, This Is Your Life, on zoom didn't be recorded for my retirement
1: uh, it was lovely and yeah.
0: um Thank you. Uh, we managed to get in touch with Ron's secretary and she said i don't know whether you'll come online or not and true to his word he did um halfway through the session
1: he stole uh, the show he, he st-
0: was, it was meant to be your evening i know he
1: stole the show of course he will so, um, <laughs> yeah that's how he gets money from people yeah i was going to put a third
0: i was going to put a third chair here tonight just in case oh <laughs> Okay, ladies and gentlemen, so we're going to leave the house lights up so uh, we can see who the guilty party is that wants to ask any questions. Um, Mike Dawes will be revolving around with the uh, microphone. Um, So, Neil, thank you for the first part of it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for being a Now we uh, start the interesting.
1: Neil, you've worked with many uh, good engineers and designers, but who really... sort of sticks in your mind as being somebody really special? Oh, uh, there have been a lot. Um, I guess the guy that's uh, stood the test of time is um, Adrian Newey. Um, not easy to work with, very, very fussy and uh, to the nth degree, but look what he's achieved. And, um, you know, it's interesting now because... Pardon
0: He's having a conversation with himself. Somehow. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> but um, a gearbox design, my friend Dave North, who was brilliant. Um, so you know, the designers now are generally specialists. You know, they—it's it's such a vast field. Formula One cars are so complicated that they all become specialists. You know. Year in, year out, someone might do the hydraulics, someone does the front wing mechanism, because there's so much detail in it. Back in the day, you know, one designer, John Barnard, uh, was brilliant. He could draw the whole car in every detail before anyone made anything. The pedal positions, the steering, the seat, everything. Um, So, obviously, he made his mark. He dropped out of it, you see, because he's arguably yesterday's man, Um, Steve Nichols. very clever man, came in from Monroe Shocks, so suspension was his forte, and then went on to be involved in the design of the overall race car, as with Neil Oatley. You know, these are guys that are here that I work with, and in their day, and Neil is still there now, they understood race cars, but cars are so complicated now. They're like they're fighter planes. On wheels, you know the techno, the computer control, the computer systems. Um, so, there've been some good designers. Derek Gardner at Tyrrell. He came up with the six wheel. He was quite innovative. He lost his way a bit, Derek. He was very funny, very well spoken was Derek. Frightfully, frightfully, and with such detail. Neil's the same with his printing. you see seen Neil Oakley's printing. <laughs> You know, i tell you something interesting. He's smiling um, down the back there, so you're... <laughs> yeah, so you, a lap chart from Neil Oatley is beautifully done. It's like a work of art. But um, it's interesting that um, the designers now, uh, they they are struggling with these new cars with ground effect. Now, we had ground effect, uh, but now ground effects come in. They're experiencing porpoising. Now, Adrian Newey will fix it, but it, it's porpoising uh, when we first started using ground effect, we experienced it in 79 on the Formula 2 car and the Formula 1 teams were experiencing it. Pulpistin is when you go quicker and quicker and quicker down the straight and the thing starts to suck down and suck down and suck down until the ground effect uh, plane becomes close to the road and then suddenly you, it stalls and you lose that and it goes up and then it gets sucked down. So in the end, you've got this effect. Well, apparently they're experiencing it now. Uh, well... We fixed it back in the day. I think we made rise in rate until it came down just before the point of that stall and it kind of suspension became solid. And that's why the drivers didn't like it, because the cars were so harsh. They had no suspension movement. Before, um, another question. um,
0: If you were going into it now, I know it's a difficult one, but where do you think you'd be coming into motorsport now? I'd probably be sweeping the
1: toilets. (laughs)
0: I put you slightly higher than oh, that. Okay. Making the tea, yeah, come on. But not. But it, it must be incredibly difficult to get into.
1: Well, yes, and as it moved on, I found myself being lost on the life in and computer stuff. So I was going to say that there's, there's um, Adrian Newey. He doesn't draw in CAD. He draws it all on his drawing board, old style. And he does his sketches and and then he gives it to the guys to turn, into. to turn into CAD. And Gordon Murray's the same. But all these designers, they all start, when they are thinking up an idea, I, I've, got a, I've got a folder of Dave North's at home that I salvaged from McLaren's when I left, and I'm giving it back to him. And I open it up, there's, designs. there's all David's sketches in there, and they all start with a little pencil sketch, mm. and then they start to do it on the CAD. But Adrian still works pencil on paper, so does Gordon. John Sutton, uh, a good gearbox designer, a very difficult guy to work with. Dave North's probably going, oh, not that guy. They, he was difficult to work with. But he could do beautiful sketches, very but correct. he never did CAD. Where would I fit in now? I'd like to think I would do graphics or something like that. I think you'd be good. All right. Uh,
0: another question over here.
1: You talked about your love for cars and engineering and things like that, and interestingly what you were just saying about what could you be doing now. There was a time when you used to come into work and your moustache would be a little bit singed um, because you'd been practicing certain circus skills. Uh, I wonder if you'd like to talk people through that, because maybe not everyone knows about that. Okay. So I like to do wild things, as my wife will vouch for. How far are we going with this? Uh, <laughs> listen, if this, if this wasn't live stream, we'd have a lot more to talk about.
0: Cut the feed now.
1: <laughs> so um, I do crazy things. I've done rock climbing. Anything that's uh, wild and interesting. So Hammy at work, this guy at work, he knew I was into that stuff. And um, he said, I'm going on a fire-breathing course down in Brighton. Do you want to come? And I said... Uh, yeah, I'm up for it. Well, come the day, and I couldn't make it. So I said, well, you go. When you come back, you show me how it's done. So Hammy went on the fire-breathing course. He's a crazy guy. He rides a unicycle, and, which I'm jealous of. And he came back, and eventually, uh, he said, when do you want to do these lessons? And I said, well, any time. So we did it over my allotment. So there we are with paraffin <laughs> breathing, flame throwing over the allotment. So I was going to do it as my closing thing tonight. <laughs> and, you, and you were worried about
0: starting the Maserati 250F. I'm really surprised.
1: I've had a few close ones.
0: <laughs> I think we spoke at one stage and you said, I'm off foraging tomorrow. So clearly you've mastered the art of not eating a bad oh, mushroom. Then.
1: Yeah, that was a waste of time. So the family always buy me surprise presents. I don't like to have gifts, you know, to do something. So they sent me on a foraging thing last year, uh, in between the lockdowns, and I thought we were going to be picking mushrooms, and we ended up eating grass all day. Oh. <laughs> and we didn't even find the right grass.
0: <laughs> Clearly not. Another question. Uh, one uh, over here, Mike. It, they're always the furthest away. You have to get. In. So the man is
1: about to take the mic. Is the ex-McLaren paint shop manager, and his nickname, his nickname is Teardropped teardrop because he always left a teardrop on the paint George <laughs> Langhorne
0: good evening Neil
1: and, and and George's quote is the paint always passes the line first the finishing line first Please remember that. <laughs> uh, Neil I've got a question for you with all this knowledge and history that you've got have you ever considered writing a book <laughs> oh, hey, that's a, a very serious question, and I've started. But, you know, to get sit down and dedicate the time to do it. So Joe Ramirez did a lovely book, Memoirs of a Racing Man, and he took six months, and he took six hours every afternoon doing it. I have started, and I'm scribbling notes, and my daughter said, you've got to do it. and But actually, last week, I did the first... So everyone says, well, don't write it all down. Do recordings first and then come back to it and type it. Mm-hmm. So I met with Robert Lifford, who was my stats man on my F3 team. Um, he's a real ologist, stats man. And he sat down with me last week for four hours and we did the Formula 3 season. Uh, I talked about Dick and I've rubbished him a bit in it. But I you do. Yep. So I've started, but it's tough, George, you know. I
0: know with someone who might be able to help you out, Richard Williams is pretty good on the old...
1: Well, uh, I, I approached him at the break and I said, how much would you charge me for the obituary? And he said... <laughs> and do you do it, you know, up front beforehand, you know? <laughs> yes. And he said, normally when I do that, people live to 100. So well, there you go. <laughs> and I said, have you done your own one yet? And he said, no. <laughs> Excellent. We've got off the
0: subject of motor racing quite quickly, but there we go. Um, Gentleman in the front here. Yes, sir. Hi, Neil. Max here. Uh, Hi, Max. You've worked with some amazing team principals over the years, some of the legends. I'm just trying to get in the camera and see Neil. Um, Some of the legends of Formula One. I'm just
1: curious, from your perspective, how do they compare? Ken Tyrrell, R D. and uh, Toranac and um, Brabham. How do they compare in their style? Well, they're all special people in their own way, as they've proved. So uh, Ron is totally OCD. He admits to that, you know, everything. Image is everything, but he says that's what sells things to the sponsors. In um, 1971, when we ran our Formula 2 team, we um, were getting ready for Crystal Palace, and we had stripped the cars down, and he insisted we had to repaint them. And why? We stripped them down every race, but I went along with it and so we stripped them down, we put it back together, we worked all night to paint them, you'll see what I'm getting to in a minute, and we turned up at Crystal Palace, they were immaculate, but we hadn't had any sleep, but they looked, we had the best image in Formula 2. We worked all day, Graham Hill driving, Tim Schenken, and uh, there was a burst water main on the circuit at Crystal Palace, and seven cars went off in the flood, Graham Hill went off and took the back end off the Brabham, bent it, and this was on the Friday, Saturday was the day off, Sunday was the race, but the cars had looked immaculate, right, and that's why we'd worked all night. Ron drove back from the track in his E-Type, he always had the expensive cars, um, I drove the truck, he never made it back, he ended up in the hospital, he'd fallen asleep and hit a lamppost head on in Wandsworth, and that was the end of his mechanic in days, which... Probably was an advantage to him because he ended up doing the management. But, and that's because it had to look right. And so that's his image. Um, Ken Tyrrell was very fair, um, lovely guy. You know, we were a family at Tyrrell. Toranac, well, Toranac, he was, you know, he never bore a grudge, Toranac. He'd shout face to face at you one minute and then two hours later he'd be chatting to you. You never approached Toronto until he'd had his morning coffee and cigarette. <laughs> but yeah, he was. So they're all different in their work. But he was a workaholic, wasn't he? Ron was a workaholic. Seven days a week, Ron Toronac, yes. Yeah. Um, he'd go home lunchtime, come back, you know, go home for dinner at night and fire the microwave up and then come back. Yeah, he was a workaholic. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But he was. Lovely man. Yeah, lovely man. Yeah, good guy. He, he died um, last year, I think. He lived to 93. Hmm. I read his... Um, at his retirement thing, he did an interview, and he said, um, I'm never going to die of an illness. He said, I think I'll jump off a, a bridge. I'm not the trouble to anyone. He was a very practical man.
0: <laughs> well, I knew his daughter, but that's another story. Great, right. <laughs> it is another story. <laughs> Um, another one here at the back, Mike, yeah. Is there any truth to a uh, myth that Ayrton Senna, Ayrton Senna sometimes copied the chassis the settings from Alan Prost or more generally did drivers occasionally or often copy the chassis or engine settings from their teammate?
1: Right, that's a good, that's a good question a simple answer and I think Steve and Neil will vouch for this. So in 88 they shared their data. Uh, and helped each other to set the car up. In fact, 88, the cars were fairly straightforward. Out of the box it was quick, but they compared notes, ratios, and Ayrton had the advantage. Um, I'm not sure Steve would agree with this, but Ayrton had the advantage of coming from Honda, and in the first year, certainly for the first part of the season, Alain wasn't using full revs, and I don't think... Uh, I don't think Ayrton told Elaine he wasn't using the full benefit of the engine. Uh, and why would he? <laughs> why would he? Uh, but um, but they, they worked very well together in' 88. '89. Well, I think I wasn't at the debriefs, and these guys were, I think, they weren't separating their debriefs. you know, they shared notes. and yeah, good question though.
0: Another one at the back. Yes, Mike.:
1: Yeah, it's me over here. On the online system, Uh, we've got
0: uh, Louis Martin on here. says, hi, Neil. Out of all the drivers you had the pleasure of working with, who was your favourite?
1: Oh, good question. That's Louis, family friend. Louis is uh, just about to start his apprenticeship at Mercedes Engines. Louis has had leukaemia for the last three years, and he's recovered.
0: Brilliant. Have
1: a a, sip of your wine, have a sip of that. So uh, Louis, um, favourite drivers, Um, not one in particular, so Jack Brabham certainly. Jack could um, engineer the car, he could strip a metering unit, Um, he was one of the guys. And and that's another thing that's changed in Formula One. Drivers and mechanics, we ate together, we socialised together, we played ping-pong, you know, swimming, we'd share the same hotel and swimming pool, and we, it was big family. Now I think it's, maybe the press have done that, but it's the drivers and mechanics not quite the same relationship that we enjoyed. Um, Tom Price was uh, a lovely guy and I, I brought him through racing. Um, a great guy. Depaye, eh? I like Depaye. So many drivers. Um, Tim Schenkin drove for us in Formula 2, and Tim was fun, uh, but very quick. About rent. So, Rib was very aloof. Um, uh, he was quick, he knew he was quick. Um, not cocky, I'm not sure if he was shy. Um, but he was, yeah, he was difficult to warm to. Warn to. So Ayrton, of course, you know, he was lovely with us guys in the beginning of the year when he first started the season. He'd come round the factory, shake hands with everyone. But he did have his moments. Um, I once I made a mistake. Well, I had two run-ins with Ayrton in our time. Um, first one was when PK was starting to ask him or starting to um, spread the rumor that Ayrton was gay. And um, Ayrton said, I'll see you in court. But one day in the truck, I just kind of brought the subject up, and he and he shouted at me, he said, yes, I am straight and I do girls, he said. So, and he pointed the finger at me and that was it. Time to back off. Yeah, but another time was um, he lost his temper um, I think it was Imola with Mansell, and um, we brought down him for a pit stop. But we'd had a problem with the wheel um, retaining screws, and uh, we took a bit too long on his pit stop. We had to check the inside of the wheel. And after the race, he came out and grabbed me by the collar. Who did that effing wheel nut? And I said, the same guy that won your first race at Lotus for you. I said, it was a technical problem. And he wouldn't apologize, and that evening, um, he finally came up and he said, I'm sorry, but he had a temper.
0: What about his religious belief? Did that come into anything in your, you know, when you were working together? No,
1: no, we knew he was religious and, um, yeah, um, he, he believed, you know, but he didn't influence it at all. He didn't, um, he didn't have anything in the car that I knew of that, you know, but he was yeah, deeply yeah. religious.
0: Um, another one, uh, anyone, anyone? Tim, we've got another one online, maybe. What about the worst driver?
1: The um, worst driver. <laughs> Did everyone hear that? What about what the about worst the, that's a Welshman trying to say worst. <laughs> <laughs> this is Hughie Absalom, who, um, he left Brabham's, deserted Brabham's, and went to McLaren with um, Denny Holm. Unfaithful, and um, and and give did <laughs> give me some space. Did the M16 IndyCar, very famous man, and still working. In fact, you ran a race car team, Dragon Racing, Dragon Racing for Mika, yep. yeah, Vauxhall Opel. So, worst driver. Um,
0: You've been very political and not answering the. question.
1: I'm questions. trying to, yeah. <laughs> I'm different. Jody was pretty. Uh, Jody was all right. No worst driver. Um, Alan Berg. Alan Berg, my F3 driver. What a uh, piece of work he was. <laughs> so we um, is he still alive? Yeah, yes. He um, he's he's Alan. Canadian, um, and he signed with me. Um, so when I started my F3 team, um, uh, he he signed with me. Uh, and his manager was Gaston Perron who was villainous manager so Gaston said come to um, Quebec Montreal and sign a contract so I went there signed a contract the money was right his father owned oil wells and um, he wasn't as good as he thought he was and so he tried to blame the team but he really wasn't that, he'd won the um, Tasman series so in a in a two-litre car, powerful car, but Formula 3 car was different. And uh, and so he left me and went to Eddie Jordan. So I stole Tassan off um, Argo, and Eddie stole Allenberg off me, yeah, a bit like Formula 1. Yeah. And um, his father said, if it takes me to oil wells, you will not... W- I, I tried to take him to court. He said, you won't win. So he was a nasty... And I even fitted him up with a girlfriend. Could have been Russian, couldn't he? Really? Yeah, it could have been.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Um, another question, Mike. I've lost Mike. Where are you? Oh, Mike, yeah, no Mike, Mike with any the more mic. Questions? Spain, okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm not going to finish it on that note, but right. pro- projections for n- breakfast is served. <laughs> um, projections for this coming, forthcoming F1 season. What do you think is going to happen?
1: Okay. I tell you what I want to mention there is the Honda deal. Right. Right. So Honda, when we won the championship with them, with Ayrton and Alain, they were great partners. And their team was so efficient. They could create a, a new development in a matter of weeks. And we worked Gotto was the, the leader, manager, and the team was totally cohesive. And throughout the time, They only changed a few people on that team. It was a training ground for them, but we were as one with them. It was such a team. Hmm. When they left us the end of 92, uh, they dropped us, actually, um, which they tend to do. Um, So I'm leading up to when they came back to us. So that was a great um, deal that we did with them, and it was a lot of money, and uh, it was probably On paper, on merit, you'd have thought they could have done the job straight away. But we struggled with them. Uh, It was a whole new team of engineers, totally unfamiliar with what was required of an F1 hybrid engine, and we struggled. Reliability, the um, hybrid system, the batteries, the motors, the engine itself, I mean, it was just a nightmare. And we went through two years of pain, and we blamed the engine. but actually our chassis was also lacking. But, so I'm going on to now, the last two years, they made that engine sing. and They got the team together.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, it was our loss, but it took that loss of that engine and us going with Renault to find out that our chassis was lacking in performance. That's, we had Pretty to do that, and it cost us 100 million a year on the contract. So now here they are, you know, top of the pile uh, with a fantastic engine, the equivalent of Mercedes. But I'll tell you a little story, which isn't in the public domain, and it should be. There's a guy named Axel Wendorf. When we went with Honda again at the beginning, we stole Axel from Mercedes to help Honda with their development. They wouldn't accept him, and they wouldn't work with him. He came in, he was in Japan for months, came back and he said, Neil, how do you work with these guys? They don't want me there, they won't talk to me. They think they know it all. And eventually he came back to McLaren's and he took a job in the factory, not on engines. Mm-hmm. right? Ironically, Axel's been with them for the last year and a half, back with them. Back again. And look what's happened. Results. Yeah, so he's helped them, but they've, they've done it as well. They don't get the credit either. You know, they don't advertise that they've won the championship, but they, they're good guys. They've done a good job. But Axel is a, is a silent uh, hero in my so, mind. So this year? Oh, this year, okay. Well, I don't know uh, because I think the ground effect, uh, I think Adrian's going to get the hang of that very quickly. Um, he's got a, an instinctive feel for Ilfer. aero. But uh, we've got a good team. I like to say we, even though you are still we. You're part of royalty. We're we're good in testing. Yeah, and we've got um, two great drivers. Yeah, Lando. Yeah, Lando.